0: It's the Bits and Pieces
1: Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bits and Pieces Podcast for August 2022. I'm Fiona McGregor from the Indie Live podcast team. We have Holyrood and Westminster both in recess, so we won't have our normal selection of clips from the various debating chambers. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing going on. If there's a theme to this month's show, it's probably Crisis. We'll be covering the climate crisis as manifested by the droughts that the south of England are suffering. We also have the energy crisis. We join in some new grassroots protests. There is the crisis of democracy in the continued refusal of our referendum and things are just generally getting hot under the collar. Let's start with water. Those of us with friends and family in England are getting increasingly worried when we hear news headlines like this.
2: More than half of England have moved into drought status after the drier summer in 50 years. As the waters recede, it could mean more hosepipe bans and tougher local restrictions.
1: But record temperatures and lack of rainfall are only half of the problem. As rivers and reservoirs evaporate, attention in the media has been turned to privatised water companies who have failed to maintain reservoirs, pipe networks, fixed leaks, all the time paying record profits to shareholders.
2: We start in England, where the Environment Agency has declared a drought in eight of its 14 areas. They are Devon and Cornwall, Kent and South London, Hertfordshire and North London, East Anglia. Thames, Lincolnshire and Northamptonshire, the East Midlands, uh, the Solent and South Downs.
1: Now at least that reporter actually identified the country as England, which is not the case for an awful lot of the media reporting, very sloppy reporting in newspapers talking about UK's rivers, UK's waters, which of course leads to a whole load of comments informing them that Scottish water is publicly owned and is also one of the most trusted utilities anywhere. And Welsh Water, whilst not publicly owned, is a not-for-profit company. Northern Ireland Water is a government-owned company whose only shareholder is the government. Unlike the other three nations of the UK, the English government chose to sell off its most essential resource into the hands of the private sector whose main interest is on generating profits for their shareholders. So who does own English Water?
3: Almost three-quarters of England's water industry is currently owned from overseas. At least 71% of shares in England's nine privatized water companies are owned by organizations from overseas including the super-rich, banks, hedge funds, foreign governments and businesses based in tax havens. Some of the leading overseas owners of England's privatized water companies include Malaysian company YTL Corporation Berhad, which owns all of Wessex Water, Chung Kong Group, a multinational registered in the Cayman Islands run by family of Lee Ka Shing, Hong Kong's richest person. They own 80% of Northumbrian water. US hedge funds BlackRock, Lazard, and Vanguard each own a stake in 7Trent, United Utilities and Southwest Water. Between Germany's Deutsche Asset Management and US private equity company Corsair Capital own half of Yorkshire Water. 40 percent of southern water is owned by u.s investment company jp morgan asset management a third of thames water is owned by investment fund companies from the united arab emirates kuwait china and australia australia's colonial first state global asset management owns a stake in anglian water seven trent united utilities and southwest water Dividends worth £6.5 billion were paid out to shareholders in the past five years, with £1.4 billion paid out in 2017 alone. 2.4 billion litres of water is wasted through leaks every single day in England. CEOs of the nine privatised water company trousered a whopping £58 million in salary, bonuses, pensions and other benefits over the past five years. While shareholders pocketed these eye-watering sums, consumer water bills in England have increased by 40% above inflation since privatisation in
1: 1989. And that damning summary came from whiteboard Alex Gudgeon on YouTube. But we needn't get too smug in Scotland because that's also the situation for most of Scottish ports. And if you'd like to know more about that, have a look at one of our Mibby's Eye episodes called Who Owns Scotland's Ports? You'll find it on Independence Live's YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. But back to water. Thanks to Believe in Scotland's excellent infographics, everybody now knows that 90% of the UK's total fresh water is in Scotland. So it was inevitable, really, that hungry eyes would be turning northwards. And the English government has quite a track record of appropriating other people's water. Just ask the Welsh.
4: Westminster's run out of Welsh-language-speaking villages to flood, because they already flooded the last one to make a reservoir to supply water to Liverpool that was never used. Not content with the 247 billion litres of water that Wales already has to give to England for free, which has been estimated to be worth up to £4.5 billion to the Welsh economy if we were just paid for it, Westminster now wants to spend £14 billion on a canal to ship water to the southeast of England. And they've actually discussed calling it the Great... Boris Canal. And it's not just Wales either. It's talk that this canal could go as far north as southern Scotland. It's completely ridiculous. Wales should be getting paid that four and a half billion for our water exports to England. And if more is required, great, pay for it. Or alternatively, you could always evict your villages and flood them. Because that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, isn't it?
1: And that was from Cymru Luke on YouTube, and he makes a fair point. Certainly Scotland has water to spare, but Scottish Water has invested 35% more per household in infrastructure since 2002 than privatised firms in England. It charges 14% less in water bills as well, and it doesn't pay out dividends to shareholders. Here's an alternative proposal. Why don't we trade our water with England as an independent country? And as if drought wasn't bad enough, as I'm recording this, there is one of those torrential summer downpours. It is absolutely stutting off the streets. So you'd think this would bring some relief. But no, now there's an even worse consequence for beleaguered regions.
5: Earlier, there were thunderstorms, which Southern Water has blamed in part for the reason why they had to release waste into the sea. Uh, They said given the dry weather recently, the parched ground couldn't absorb the heavy rainfall and so their systems got overwhelmed. Uh, They also added that they're working to reduce the amount of rainfall entering the sewers
1: by 2030. By 2030? That's another eight years of pouring raw sewage into their rivers and onto their beaches. Just metres from the shore brown bubbles of sewage splitter out into the sea.
5: Warnings are in place across much of the south coast of England not to venture into the sea because of the pollution being pumped out after heavy rainfall. What's happening here is perfectly legal. Water companies are allowed to discharge into rivers and seas when there's a risk of pipes overflowing. But the criticism is that it happens too often, not just when there's been heavy rain but light rain too. And that there hasn't been enough investment in infrastructure to stop it from being needed. Last year, Southern Water were fined a record 90 million pounds after admitting deliberately dumping vast amounts of sewage into the sea across the south coast. Official data gathered by the environmental group Surfers Against Sewage show nearly 50 beaches have pollution warnings, mostly concentrated along the south. But beaches in Lincolnshire, Lancashire, Norfolk, Northumberland and Cumbria
1: have also been contaminated. It's legal right now for water companies to do that. The reason it's legal is because Tory employees, including the Scottish Tories, voted to allow them to do it. I'm sure all those foreign owners and shareholders will be very grateful to the Tory party.
0: You're listening to Bits and Pieces.
1: When our biggest problems are heat waves and droughts, it seems a long way away from winter when we're all going to be cold and shivering and complaining because we can't afford to put the heating on. It's no joke. Domestic heating bills in the UK have gone up by 225% already, compared to France's 4%. France nationalised EDF, which is why they're able to keep control of those prices. How is this allowed to happen, is the question that many of us are asking. Craig DL's guest on the Commonweal Policy podcast this week was Richard Murphy. And I would strongly recommend that you listen to the whole of Craig's podcast. But here is a little flavour of the discussion, specifically on the point of whose interest is Ofgem protecting.
4: Putin declares war and then we get the crisis in Ukraine. He invades and then there's a fear, a fear rather than a reality, I stress, that we might suffer shortages of oil and gas. Now, so far, nobody has actually had a real shortage of oil or gas. In other words, every single person who's turned up at a petrol station has got the fuel they want, every single person who's turned on their cooker has got the gas they want, and that's true right across Europe and pretty much throughout the world. So there isn't a real shortage. Amazingly, Russia has you know changed its supply lines and everything else, and that has not disrupted the world as yet. But this is a bit like the great toilet roll crisis of April 2020. When we thought there was suddenly going to be a shortage of toilet rolls, I'd, people went into you know whatever your chosen local store was and bought every toilet roll they could lay their hands on and literally did forward buying of lots and lots of toilet roll, more than we could possibly imagine that they would ever need for a long time to come. Well, oil companies and oil speculators have done exactly the same with regard to oil and gas. They bought vast quantities of oil and gas forward to try and make sure they can guarantee their supplies and they have massively pushed up the price. We controlled the price of toilet rolls by simply there being none on the shelves but actually the future price of oil and gas is something which is actually not dependent upon real physical product. It's you're buying something that hasn't even got out of the ground yet. So people can pay the push the price up they have, and that's what's caused our inflation now. It is speculation in the price of oil and gas that is really leading through to all the other products. How much of this has also been driven by outright corporate profiteering? Well, look, let's be honest, this is all down to corporate profiteering. There is no other explanation. I mean, I did some work earlier this year to and I examined the oil supply chain of a company which is a producer to petrol pump company. And you know these companies, they're called Shell and BP, and there are plenty of others like that around the world. Exxon, which is SO, and so on. But these companies basically do everything from literally exploring for oil, digging the well getting it out of the ground shipping it refining it getting it to the p- petrol station and everything else in between their costs have not increased at any stage in their supply chain and yet their pump prices have massively increased you know some sort of from 120, 30 a liter to over 2 pounds a liter now slightly less a liter depending on where you are And that increase in price is fundamentally pure profiteering. And it's the same for all types of oil-based product. They are basically literally taking profit from this panic, which is uh, relating to this supposed shortage, which doesn't even exist. And they are coining it. So in the last quarter, we've seen you know, BP declare profits of over 10 billion pounds, which was a record. A couple of years ago, they made a loss. Um, Shell has made a uh, profit of something like the same order. Both of them are paying out more than 6 billion extra of dividends or share buybacks for their shareholders. They're not investing despite all the guff that they talk about in new green energy or anything else. They're simply flooding or you know, shoveling the cash at their shareholders as fast as they can. They've got no use for it. And so they are making the most enormous profits and even a pretty awful gas company like Centrica, which owns British gas, which have been unprofitable for years, is now paying dividends of significant dividends again because frankly, it's got nothing else to do with its money. It's making so much. So profiteering is everywhere. The corporate world is winning hands down exactly as we are losing. You can pretty much say however much stress we've got, they're rolling in it
6: just seen this morning as we're recording this that E.ON have have reported uh, another three billion pounds in pre-tax profits for the first half of this year. Yet another energy company showing its profit margins there. Richard Murphy, if you had the ear of the Bank of England and you could tell them do these three things, what would your list be?
4: One, I would cut the rate of interest. I would just say, look, bring it down. And they'd say, oh but the value of the pound will fall against the dollar. I don't care. I
6: can't
4: anyway, but it is falling anyway. The people of this country are more important than the value of the pound against the dollar in the short term and actually exchange rates are not set by interest rates in the long term. They're set by relative productivity. So I would do that. The second thing I'd be saying is we actually have to do something to deal with the absolutely imminent crisis of increasing um, energy costs. Now, that would, to me, mean that we go back to Ofgem and tell them to change the way in which they set the energy price cap. The energy price cap is set in a way that guarantees the producers will always be profitable. With gas, that's fairly easy to understand, except for the fact that we still produce most of our own gas in the UK. But we are paying the international price for gas because Ofgem requires the energy companies to assume they've got to bid in the international market to buy back the domestic gas production that we've made here to pay the international price for it to sell on to us. So we don't get the benefit of being a gas producer, we pay the international price anyway. That, of course, just inflates the gas profits being made from the North Sea still. Second thing with regard to Ofgem, their electricity pricing is absolutely crazy we can make electricity out of five fundamental sources, coal, hydro, renewable, nuclear, and gas, and our gas is 40% of it. If they all a year ago cost a pound a unit to produce, now that's not true, they didn't all cost the same amount, but let's just assume that for simplicity's sake, then the obvious price at which to sell it, electricity was a pound a unit. And I'm including a fair profit margin, three, four, 5% in that as part of the cost. Now, the price of gas has doubled, that gas production has doubled. Ofgem says, oh, we've got to make sure that the gas producers are profitable. So what they do is say, well, if it costs two pounds a unit to produce gas, we must charge two pounds to everybody for all the electricity we produce. But it doesn't cost any more to make hydropower hydro power anymore. Now, it doesn't cost any more to make renewable power now. In fact, that's falling steadily, as we know. Coal is almost irrelevant. Um, But nuclear, again, is a fixed price, basically, um, until Hinkley comes on board, which will be incredibly expensive. But fundamentally, we're talking about all the other sources of electricity being fixed price. Gas has gone up, and we're paying the price of gas, even though the others are fixed. Therefore, all the other energy electricity producers are making increased profits. Ofgem is simply trying to fleece us to keep maximum profits inside the energy system.
1: That'll be the same off-gem that we featured on Bits and Pieces a couple of months ago when they were guests at Holyrood explaining why they couldn't possibly address the unfair grid connection charging regime that penalises Scottish customers and Scottish renewables industry while subsidising those in the south-east of England. Those of you who listened to our Power to the People podcast a couple of weeks ago will know that that is the name of a a grassroots campaign that's been started off in Glasgow, but hopefully is spreading throughout the country to challenge the unfairness of the current heating crisis in very practical ways. They started off their grassroots campaign this month with a protest outside the Scottish Power offices in Glasgow. I went along. You can see some footage of the protest and catch some of the speeches on Independence Live's YouTube channel. It even included a good old-fashioned sing-song, which we'll give you a flavour of now.
7: We are not very
1: Leading the singing there and leading the demo was Francis Curran, who's a member of Socialists for Scottish Independence. Now, Marlene Halliday and I interviewed Francis for our upcoming Indie Jigsaw show, which will be going out next week when we look at uh, various ways of campaigning. Francis is definitely from the grassroots and uh, a veteran of the poll tax campaigns. And here's a little taster of what's coming up in that interview.
7: The energy markets are shambles. It's an absolute dysfunctional market. It's awash with public money. And every time something goes wrong and there's difficulties, then they just adjust it and they make it up. Mm. It's Mm. not a proper market. It's got billions of pounds of public money in it. Well, what's happening internationally and and the price of of gas, then we know that this isn't going to be resolved quickly. And if anything, the companies are just trying to manoeuvre themselves to continue to both make more profit and get public money to save them. This is not going to be a short campaign. So when you're in for the long haul, we're in for a year, two years down the line, defending people against what what the companies want to do to them. That's going to take a really big campaign, a grassroots campaign. We need thousands and thousands of people to be involved in this campaign. And so you need to organize action like the Scottish Power Demonstration in order to bring people together and begin to get a wider and wider circle of people who get involved in the campaign.
1: On our social media coverage of the protest, there was a few comments came in on the lines of, why are you doing this in front of Scottish power? Why not go to Holyrood or Westminster? So I put that question to Francis as well. So the energy companies, they just want
7: to make profit for the shareholders. That's it. That's the bottom line. And that's who they're answerable to. So going to Scottish Power, their shareholders have had... Last year, the the Big Five made £7.7 billion. And they paid it dividends. So protesting against Scottish Power is part of the campaign. The energy companies are not getting off the hook. They could implement a price freeze. What reserves do they have? They should have been putting money away for a rainy day. Their shareholders are the richest people in the world. Every year, they make more and more and more money, no matter how much we pay. So we were saying to them, you need to take the hit. The other thing about Scottish Power was we want the um, late fees cancelled. It's money for nothing. Yeah. £10, yeah. £20, £33, yeah. 95 and, and, and handing over a debt collector. It's an industry. Yeah. So we want them cancelled. And we actually think we can win that. And the other thing is we want no forced prepayment meters. And we also want a lower tariff on the prepayment meters. Yeah, so absolutely. we've yeah. got three demands and two of them immediately. Scottish Power, as a company, could implement tomorrow. So that was one of the reasons we went to Scottish Power. Holyrood is a bit of a different kettle of fish because energy isn't devolved. Mm -hmm. And I'm not letting the Scottish Government off the the hook because they've not come out and said they're in favour of price raise. One of the areas where the Scottish Government can intervene, and it'll come to this, is when it comes to debt. Because Mm -hmm. loads of areas of debt are devolved and we Mm -hmm. want the Scottish Government to use their powers to protect ordinary people against big companies who are chasing Mm -hmm. them for money which is a multi-million pound industry, just ripping people off with not getting enough money. And there's a guy called Alan McIntosh and he's written a bill called the Cost of Living Debt Scotland bill and it's got about eight points in it. And we want the Scottish Parliament to pass them. It's things about wage arrestments, bank arrestments, how much money you can keep, whether people can come in your house and take your goods away. There's loads of things like that. So, So we want them to pass that. And if, well, it's going to happen anyway, but we're going to get to that stage if you're going to intervene in this at all from the point of view of Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP, then that's the place to intervene and protect to people. Yeah. And then we'll be able to see whether they're in the side of the big companies and yeah. they're going to be in the side of the people. So we would go to Holyrood for that. And as for Westminster, I mean, is there any point going there, anything? <laughs> I mean, seriously? <laughs> well, at this stage, they're not going to listen. I think what's going to make Westminster sit up and listen is if there's protest across the country. Yeah. Instead you going to Westminster... We need mass protest. We need pensioners to protest. We need young people to protest. We need women to protest. We need everybody to come onto the streets.
1: Will that happen before the 1st of October? I think in Scotland we'll be able to bring pressure to bear. And having whetted your appetite for a bit of rebellion, you can hear the whole of that interview on our podcast next week.
0: You're listening to Bits and Pieces.
1: In this next section of the Bits and Pieces podcast, we're going to be looking at the response to these various crises. And it does feel as if there is a growing anger on a lot of different fronts. One person who has really cut through is Mick Lynch from the RMT and he stars in a video with a lot of different uh, unions called Enough is Enough. We're just going to start off this section of the programme listening to that.
4: People are fed up with the way they're treated at work. We need to turn that mood into real organisation on behalf of the working class.
6: Enough is enough.
4: There's always another crisis and it's always workers who pay the price. We've suffered... The biggest pay squeeze in history, and workers become all about working harder and faster for less. And now they want you to pay for it all again. Well, it's time somebody else paid the price.
5: Things can't go on like this. Record profits for big business, record number of billionaires, record wealth for the top 10%. But life is getting harder for everyone else. You
4: always make the sacrifices, yet they always reap the rewards. None of this is inevitable.
5: It's a political choice, your need or their greed.
4: So it's time everyone in this country,
8: who's got a rotten landlord, who's got a low wage, who's got in-work benefits, who's going to a food bank, who can't get a doctor's appointment, who can't get housing. It's about time we all stood up together and said,
2: Enough is enough. This cost of living crisis affects us all.
5: This is not just about rail workers or cleaners.
2: Posties, engineers or call centre workers.
5: Or nurses or teachers or firefighters. It's
4: about you and every workplace and every community across this country. It's
5: time for a campaign that draws the line. It's
4: time to say enough is enough. Fair pay, affordable bills, enough to eat and a decent place to live. These things are not luxuries. They're your rights.
5: This is a campaign to bring people together. For a real pay rise, to slash energy bills, to end food poverty and for decent homes for all. And to finally tax the rich and big business.
8: If
4: you agree, share this video, spread the word.
5: And sign up today at wesayenough.co.uk.
4: We can't be divided. We need everybody campaigning for a better deal.
5: We will be organising rallies. We will be forming community groups and we will be on picket lines.
4: We're going to be standing up for ourselves.
5: We're going to fight.
4: We're not all in this together.
8: We never have been. The people that are in this together are working class people who've been mugged for far too long.
5: It's time to say enough is enough. Enough is enough. Enough
0: is enough. Enough is enough. enough, enough,
2: is enough. enough.
5: It's time to channel anger into action.
1: Turn anger into action. Well, that is the aspiration, isn't it? But if you do, be prepared for a furious Tory media-led backlash which attempts to deflect all attention onto the protesters rather than the reason they're angry in the first place. Classic gaslighting by the state media, backed up in Scotland by all the unionist parties. And of course the first casualty of such an approach is the truth. The Tory leadership, Hustings, rolls on, it seems to have been going on for about 200 years, as two inadequate candidates try to out-thatcher each other to see who can dive furthest to the far right. It's horrific. Scotland's turn was on Tuesday when the Hustings came to Perth. If you're unfamiliar with the layout, the the Perth Concert Hall is a large building with a sort of um, walkway in front of it. Then there is a very, very wide, probably equivalent to about three lanes across, street There's barriers at the other side of the street and protesters are welcome to stand at the other side of those barriers. You're a long way away from the parade of wizened old white men walking into the concert hall who are the Tory members who are going to choose the next prime minister of the country next door. You'll have read in the papers or seen on the news quotes like, oh, ugly scenes and and the Nationalists this and the SNP that. This was an anti-Tory protest. It wasn't an independence event. It was an anti-Tory protest. Certainly there were independence supporters there. Socialist Workers Party were there. Trade unions were there, NHS workers were there, Action Against Racism were there, ALPA was there. People affiliated with parties and and not affiliated with parties just annoyed at the Tories. Contrary to the reports you might have read, it was actually quite a good natured protest. There were a couple of thousand people there. There was music. There were a whole range of banners. There were leaflets. There were stalls. And right enough, when recognisable Tories walked in to the concert hall, they did get a good booing. Alistair Jack, the Secretary of State against Scotland, he came in for a particularly good booing. A lot of the tweets from the Tories afterwards seemed to be this was an outpouring of hate. Well, Do you know, in my opinion, if you don't want an outpouring of hate, maybe don't do hateful things. Maybe don't espouse hateful policies that make the life of ordinary people worse. Maybe that would be an idea. Now, there were also reports of spitting, which you'd need a water cannon to reach the other side of the street. There's no way anybody could spit across a three lane highway. It's like trying to spit across a motorway. There was also reports of egg throwing. Well, if there were eggs thrown, you're probably looking at future Olympic champions if they did manage to get an egg to the other side of that street. Given the cost of living crisis and food shortages, it would seem like a a waste of a perfectly good egg. But if any were thrown, they certainly fell far short of the, the Tories on the other side of the street. The other big story was James Cook, who is BBC Scotland's political editor. Now, all the press were in the safety zone on way on the other side of the street. Kieran Jenkins of Channel 4, I saw him. He was set up. He was doing a piece to camera. He had interviewing people as they went past. He had pictures of the protesters. He was miles away from us. Now, for some reason known only to him... James Cook decided to come into the no-man's land in the middle, which was where the police were standing. was a a huge gulf. You'll have seen the photos. He walked up, cheeky grin on his face, hands in his pockets. It wasn't as if he was interviewing people. He walked to the angriest-looking section of the protest. He got engaged in a conversation about the claim of right of all things. He managed to wind up two people who obviously, as with a lot of people at the moment, think that the claim of right is some kind of magic phrase that's going to win us independence. I don't subscribe to that view, but they do. And he managed to wind them up to the point where they called him a traitor. It's no worse than the, the right-wing cat litter tray liners like The Mail, The Express, The Telegraph and The Sun have used about people like high court judges, for example. Remember, enemies of the people? And it certainly didn't justify that outpouring of nonsense that came from the Tories the following day and from the mainstream media. The only media that I saw that gave anything approaching a balanced reporting was Byline Times Scotland. And if you want to have a look at their report, I will link to it in the notes of this decent balanced bit of reporting. And then bizarrely, Nicholas Sturgeon, Ian Blackford, various other senior SNP officials leapt to James Cook's defence. Whether that was an attempt to distance themselves from what was going on or curry favour with James Cook, who knows? But in any event, that was Perth. We have a bit of footage on our Indie Live Extra YouTube channel. It shows the layout, it shows the atmosphere this little bit of recording from the event will give you an idea This is Alistair Jack walking in and you can hear boos and shame on you, which for somebody who consistently votes against the interests of Scotland seems fair comment to me. There was also a little bit of this. Again, fair comment in my view, particularly at a Tory leadership event. The contribution from one of the NHS workers I thought was good. Under the Tories, NHS vacancies and waiting lists have soared. The public cannot access
5: the care they need and deserve. This is also that it is easy for the Tories to privatise the NHS. We are completely protected here in Scotland from this. Last year, private companies were invited to bid on 1,500
1: medical procedures in Scotland. This was not an independence event, but I thought, ironically, one of the best speeches came from William Duket, who is involved with the Perth Yes Hub his speech was impassioned uh, but it had some humour in it as well which would have left the audience in no doubt as to how he felt As you have
9: probably gathered um, the seam of talent in the Tory party runs horrendously shallow (laughs) and from a field originally touted as highly diverse but actually all sharing the same depressing characteristics of being wealthy (laughs) privileged totally out of touch with ordinary people and wannabe thatcherites. We're down to the last two vacuous charlatans, and we still haven't seen evidence of the barest scrooby in the either of their minds about how to deal with the cost of living crisis that's already beginning to engulf us all. Those of you with even short memories will recall that we were here three years ago in exactly the same place when the helicopters buzzed overhead as we watched the serried ranks of Scottish Conservatives trooping into Perth concert hall to select the 2019 version of a growing line of Prime Ministers to be foisted on us. That time, they picked the laziest, most mendacious, duplicitous, unreliable, useless, dishevelled sack of garden fertilizer you could possibly imagine. Great call guys and now here we are this evening, who in their wildest dreams would have guessed that now they would be standing on the threshold of selecting someone even worse and this is Scotland in microcosm, politics being done to us without our consent with zero benefit to us by a small group of people who don't represent us in the interests of a party we haven't voted for in my entire lifetime, and I am old. Thank you very much. Of course, while it's the Tories particularly in receipt of the bats from us tonight, we mustn't forget the other side of the Westminster equation. The increasingly rightward drifting Labour Party, the other cheek of the well upholstered establishment Bahuki. Anyone who's recently sniffed the air in North Monarchshire will know how casually and noxiously Tory and Labour councillors will work together to thwart the intentions of local voters. Both of those parties and the occasional enablers, the Lib Dems, have but a single response to Scotland's wish to decide its own future, expressed in election after election. No, you be. We will not elect you. You're ours to do what we like with. We no longer hear any case for the union. That has ceased to be. It has shuffled off its mortal to coil. It's gone to join the choir invisible but so along with it has the project fear that in 2014 we were constantly getting slapped around the face with now we can and we must clearly articulate the argument that any and all risks attached to scottish independence are heavily heavily outweighed by the drawbacks of staying in this toxic union I bet you that even some of the Tory electors going into the concert hall tonight know this in their heart of hearts. Are they really happy with the choice they've got? Are they truly comfortable with Scotland constantly being disrespected and dismissed?
1: We are allowed to be angry when we perceive that we're being dealt with unfairly. We are allowed to voice that anger in order to try and bring about change. For the Tories of all people to try and pretend that we should be abiding by a code of conduct when their prime minister is fined and then sacked for failing to abide by the ministerial code and the civil service code and the law of the land, We're through the looking glass here. The best we can say about it is it shows just how desperate they are. And final word on the Tories. When they're creating a performance in one direction, it's always wise to look in the opposite direction and see what they're trying to hide, such as a whole load of reports on various very important aspects of the welfare state. Current Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Therese Coffey, You'll probably recognise her from that photo of her guzzling champagne and smoking a cigar. She's refusing to publish reports on the benefits cap, deaths of benefit claimants, the impact of universal credit benefit sanctions, and she has no plans to publish two more reports on unpaid carers and work capability assessments. So we may never know exactly what is in the reports, but I think we could guess that it doesn't show the Tory government in a very good light. So as the removal vans thunder down Downing Street with who knows what in it, probably lots of steamed off rolls of gold wallpaper, who knows, angry chanting from behind the safety of a barrier is the least they deserve.
0: You're listening to Bits and Pieces.
1: For the final section of our bits and pieces for this month, we're going to turn to our old favourite, the democratic deficit, the crisis that is the failure of the Westminster government to recognise the democracy of Scotland. And we are getting a lot of support from Europe, other parts of the UK, including England. Our issue is with the Westminster government, not the people of England. All of us have friends and family in England. Unlike in 2014, when they were lining up the celebrities to beg us to stay with them, this time round, I think there is a much wider understanding of why we want to be independent. I think they also generally appreciate that promises made to secure the no vote have not been followed through on. I I think they get that. Um, Earlier on, I mentioned *Byline Times, independent journalists. They also have a podcast, TV show and a YouTube show. They devoted their show one week to Scottish independence. Once you get over the slightly strange experience of two English journalists in the country next door discussing our referendum, They actually had quite a good understanding of most of the issues and made some good points. So here is a little bit of the conversation. Peter Duke's first guest was actually James Dornan, who set the record straight on a couple of very basic points that probably had everybody in Scotland screaming at their TVs, but always worth repeating to make sure these points are understood.
2: But I imagine that from all the polling that Boris Johnson has alienated Scots, As much as margaret thatcher did if not more is there a sort of window here for independence which there might not be in four or five years time with the starmer government i don't really believe that's the case i can't argue about the fact that johnson has been a godsend he's one of our best agents and and i think he's doing a great job for the cause of independence but the fact is that when we get elected we said we would have a referendum in the first part of this this parliament session, and that's what we're doing. You know, it seems that we are being criticised for upholding our manifesto pledges, <laughs> and that's an unusual way for people to behave towards a government. So that's what the timing is about. Johnson and the, the shambles of the Tory party, they've just added bonuses to what is an exceptionally good case in the first place. And that perennial
1: favourite, once in a generation.
2: The talk was that this subject wouldn't be raised again for a generation. We're now at nine years on, I assume. What's changed to make this another generation? Okay, the generation thing was a, a comment by politicians. It's the same sort of once in a generation that you get before every election. This is your once in a generation opportunity to kick the Tories out, to kick Labour mm-hmm. out, whatever the case may be. And that's, how, that's the context of the once in a generation. It's not that long ago that Boris Johnson said he would die in a ditch before he would change the Brexit deal. And yet, I'm sure that I saw him on the television just recently. So these things are said in the context of campaigning, but there was nothing on the Edinburgh Agreement that, that talked at all about once in a generation. It's a red herring used by our opponents to try and say that there's no legitimacy about the people of Scotland having a democratic right.
6: Anyone who believes in democracy can subscribe to the view that the Scottish people have asked for a referendum because under our parliamentary system, and the parliamentary system in Scotland as well, uh, the the party that is in government, uh, and we have tea parties in government uh, that have a majority of seats, their manifestos asked for a referendum and that is what they must have. They must be free to implement their their manifesto commitment. Now, you can't change the goalposts and say, well, 50% of people didn't vote for pro independence parties because fifty percent of people didn't vote for for pro Brexit parties yeah, yeah, yeah. in in yeah. the twenty nineteen election. Fifty I think fifty three percent of votes went to will probably remain parties yep. in 2019, but that wasn't a sufficient mandate to have a new referendum, because that's not how the system works. Mm-hmm. The Conservatives won a majority, and any, everyone could agree that Brexit had to happen after the 2019 election, Absolutely. even the most fervent of mm-hmm. us Remainers. Uh, what happens after is obviously a different matter. The Conservatives had a mandate to govern, mm-hmm. and they had a right to implement their manifesto after 2019. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, it is simply untenable for Scotland to be denied, or the Scottish people, or the Scottish government, or Scottish Parliament to be denied a referendum, when that has been an SNP manifesto commitment in the last four national elections—in uh, 2021 20, uh, in the Scottish Parliament elections, 2019 general election, 2017 general election, and in the 2016 Scottish Parliament election—where Sturgeon said. If there was material change of circumstances, such as a Brexit vote, then we would want to hold a referendum. And so that's four elections that the SNP has had, an independence referendum, on its man, in its manifesto, and it's won all four of those elections. Now, if, how, what more do the Scottish people have to do to ask for a referendum under the system? What more could they have to do? And if they don't have the right to ask a referendum, then what are we actually saying about Scotland's right to self-determination? Is there any legal right to secede from the union? And if not, then this is not a union, it's a prison. And I think we have to be very, very honest about that and open about it. And Sunak and Trust are both continuing uh, this completely anti-democratic policy whereby one person in Downing Street can overturn the wishes of the Scottish people and uh, dictate the policy agenda of the Scottish government. Can they... I mean, is this a a question of politics, that it's wrong and it
2: went sustainable, or is it a question of legality? Has Downing Street the right to deny or stop
6: a a second Scottish referendum? Well, we'll find that out, because that's obviously what the Mm. the, uh, uh, SNP, Scottish Government, is hoping to determine in in the Supreme Court case. We'll we'll find out what what the position is, and obviously Sturgeon said the backup is to treat the next general election as a de facto referendum. So either way, the Scottish people will will have to have their voices heard in some way, but I think we do need to, in the same way that we followed legal procedures to leave the European Union under Article 50, there has to be some kind of mechanism within the Union. For, well, for one of those nations to secede. Otherwise, in the way there is for Northern Ireland, yeah. you know, under the Good Friday Agreement. So there has to be a way for Scotland to secede if the Scottish people decide that's what they want to see.
1: Another supporter, Mick Lynch, who we referred to earlier on in this podcast. Unlike the Labour Party and the Scottish Labour Party, both of whom seem to think it's OK to keep Scotland prisoner, Mick Lynch had a refreshingly different take.
4: Well, the future of Scotland and its, and its uh, constitution is a matter for the Scottish people. I'm not going to come to Scotland and tell people what they should do. And that's a, a matter to be decided democratically through all the means that the Scottish people have through debate. And if that means a referendum at the end, that's what that's what will happen. But it's got to be the will of the Scottish people that's expressed. And it's not for me to come up from London and wade into that debate. That's for Scotland to sort out. And I'll be happy to to assist in that in our union. We did that before on, on the last referendum. But we're a democratic union and we'll go with where democracy takes us.
1: And Gavin Esler weighed in as well.
4: Boris
0: Johnson did something quite remarkable. Uh, he managed to irritate not just nationalists in Scotland, nationalists in Northern Ireland, nationalists in Wales. He managed to irritate the unionists as well. I can't tell you some of the things without querying that Scottish Conservatives have said to me about Boris Johnson and his administration. One who's very prominent said to me, Water effing shower <laughs> talking about his entire administration. Uh, and, and one of the reasons they felt like that was that they saw him as a great recruiting sergeant for the nationalists. Uh, if you represent a Conservative party which has not been in the majority in Scotland for since the 1950s, And you are particularly a type of of English person, an old Etonian who talks in the language of, you know, the 1950s. And there were lashings of ginger ale for tea, that kind of stuff. That doesn't go down very well outside a certain group in England. And it certainly doesn't go down well in Scotland. Now, the question of his successor, I mean, (laughs) what can one say? I don't think there'll be a great deal of relief necessarily that this trust can save the union within people in in Scotland. Rishi Sunak is also a very interesting character, but I'm not sure. This trust seems to think that the union stops in, um, in Yorkshire with the, the railway line which she's promised in the, her home, home uh, county. And she may be playing very good politics there, but I don't think materially that things will necessarily change over the next 18 months, whichever one of those two candidates becomes prime minister.
1: And finally, just to wrap up for this month, another All Under One Banner march was held, this time in Highlands in Inverness. Well attended, about 3,000 there. Wonderfully joyous as ever. And Drew Hendry, who's SNP MP for that area, was one of the speakers. And we're going to finish with his thoughts on where we are in the campaign right now. It was quite a blustery day and I've filtered out the wind as much as I can, but there are still some bits where uh, it's blowing. He's also joined by a dog at one point. (laughs) The joys of outdoor broadcasting. Hopefully you'll still be able to get what he's saying. This is true, Hendry.
8: What a fantastic march. What a fantastic march. Um, So much joy and good humour. And I know you would have seen the tourists and uh, the locals all watching and clapping and filming as you were going past. It's about connecting with people, it's about getting the right things for people, and that's what we'll continue to do. In the Highlands just now, across Scotland and indeed across the other nations of the UK, there is a crisis for people. I was at a round table last week meeting with housing associations, social support groups, the Citizens Advice Bureau the Highland Council and many others talking about the looming crisis that people are facing, particularly over energy costs. These things are not an accident. The high level of inflation, higher than anywhere else in Europe, is not an accident. That's a matter of design. It's a matter of choice. It's a matter of the choice that's been made by the people that are running the government in Westminster and it is not good enough, it's not good enough for anybody, it's broken for everybody but it's certainly not good enough for Scotland. We stand somewhere that produces 325% of the electricity that we need from renewable sources and yet we've got people terrified about the bills they face and people already suffering. It's not good enough and we must be able to change that, we must be able to go forward. And for those people that seek to deny your democratic right, for those people who say you cannot choose a better future than the one imposed on you by self-serving people at Westminster, we've got to say that's not for us. We've got to say we have got a better choice for the people of Scotland and we've got to get the message out to everybody in Scotland who are Growing in their number and understanding that there is a different way ahead, that there is a better choice for our people here. But we've got to get that message out over the next year. To say to people, this is Scotland's time to make a difference. This is Scotland's time to take charge of its own affairs, to make its own decisions for its own people, to make different choices for our families, for our neighbours, for our friends, for our children and for our future so that we're not left with a toxic legacy that's been produced through Westminster. And you are doing a great job through the engagement that you bring forward in order to do that by speaking to your neighbours, to your friends, to your family, and indeed, by speaking to those people who don't agree with you in a calm and measured way, in a friendly way, seeking to persuade we will do the job of persuading people that there is a choice that they can take next year that will give us a better future for Scotland. And that future is through independence. What you're being met with at the moment is desperation and anger from people who have run out of ideas. They've run out of excuses. Nobody, nobody can tell you what the good reason for staying in the union of the UK is at the moment. You ask, Tory MPs, people who've had years to think about this and they cannot come up with the lines. They say something vague about um, stuff that you would have had to do anyway during the uh, COVID crisis about vaccinations and they tell you a lot of flu- It's all nonsense. They could have done that within Europe and yet they made that choice to take us out. They made that choice of self-harm for Scotland and for the rest. We are here and we can do something about it. We can challenge and we can make sure that that challenge is a friendly and engaging one, powerful and persuading one. And we have got the answers, we have got the ability, we have got the people, we have got the energy, we have got the ability, and we've got the wealth and resource in this country to make Scotland a success. So carry on the good work you're doing, take this forward and let's realise Scotland's future for the better. Thank you.
1: So that's it for this month. Parliament will be back in September. So no doubt it'll be more business as usual for the September episode. In the meantime, on the 2nd of September, we have the latest of our Indie Jigsaw show, which is our YouTube show and podcast. This time looking at different kinds of lobbying and campaigning. Very interesting discussion. Our guests are Grant Tom, Francis Curran. So as the campaign ramps up, here's different ways that you might want to think about how to approach it. We've gathered together some ideas, including even tips from Rob Shorthouse, who claims to be the guy who won the no campaign. How did he do it? We share that with you on our show, which is out from the 2nd of September. Thanks for listening. Bye now.
0: You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces.